Matthew 28, verses 1 through 7. Matthew 28, verses 1 through 7. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning, his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said to the women, fear not, for you know that you seek Jesus. I know you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, he is risen. As he said, come see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall ye see him. Lo, I have told you. That message changed the world. If there were no other scripture except chapter 28, verses 1 through 7, our world could have been changed dynamically. God wonderfully gave us 66 books of the Bible, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, all pointing to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who had taken away the sin of the world. And you remember that day at Calvary. We have sung about it. We preached about it. Had a great sunrise service this morning. Our Sunday school lesson dealt with it. But as they walked away from the hill of Calvary that afternoon, their hopes and dreams and the faith of that group of followers of the Galilean prophet were shattered. All was over. They had loved that man who before their very eyes had been stricken down by cruel men and crucified as a tyrant and a criminal. The Galilean prophet was dead. They had heard him preach. They had seen him raise dead people to life again. They had seen him touch blind eyes and cause them to see, even interrupt funeral professions and, and raise dead people to life. But now he's gone. The trial with Jesus in Pilate's hall, a mob of Jews leading their Messiah to a Gentile judge that he might confirm the death sentence already pronounced by the Jews. They had heard the hysterical shouts of the fickle crowd, crucify him, crucify him. Release unto us Barabbas. Away with this man, release unto us Barabbas. Crucify Jesus. They saw him laid out of the streets of Jerusalem so weak he could not carry the cross. Led to the hill of a skull. Outside the north wall of Jerusalem, outside the Damascus Gate, there's a skull-shaped hill. Tradition says that's where they used to stone the prophets. Perhaps that's where Jeremiah was killed or was abused. On top of that hill were three crosses. The cross of rejection, 
the cross of redemption, the cross of reception. In all these years, every one of us has faced those crosses. In the middle, the cross of redemption. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. In him there was no sin. But that day at Calvary, he took upon himself all of our sins. The suffering Savior took all the ugly things in our lives and covered them with his blood. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. I think one reason God gave us a snow, to remind us that sin could be covered. All the ugly, trashy things of our lives could be covered with the blood of Christ that is described as making us white as snow. Everyone in this room is guilty of sin. There's not one of us who has not sinned. The Bible says we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Somebody said, well, my sin's not as bad as somebody else's sin. If you have cancer that hurts and you have cancer with no symptoms, the doctor says you have six months to live. You can live those six months with no pain, perhaps, or you can live those six months with pain, but the end is death. It's the way a lot of people face life. They recognize there's been sin. They don't know what to do about the sin. So they hug it a little bit deeper, cling on to it more. They cannot give it up. They keep on keeping on. And then the end comes. And the Bible says there are only two places to spend eternity. One is heaven, the other is hell. Everyone in this room is going one direction or the other. If you've never repented of your sins and turned from sin to Christ, you're on your way to hell. I don't, it doesn't matter how many churches you belong to or how many times you've been baptized. The question is, has there been repentance in your heart so that you've been changed? You no longer desire to have your own way. You want to follow his way. I can hear the Savior calling, take thy cross and follow me. Where he leads me, I will follow. Some people have the strange idea that they can go through life and suit themselves and do whatever they want to do. And at the end, it's okay. There is a way that seemeth right unto man. The end thereof is the way of death. They had heard the hysterical shouts of the fickle crop, crucify him, crucify him. They saw him led out of the streets of Jerusalem so weak he could not carry his cross. They went to the hill of a skull. They heard the thunder and the earthquake, the darkness. And when all this was happened and was over, Jesus was dead. They saw his body taken down and laid in a barred tomb. Joseph and Nicodemus took the body of Jesus and buried it in a borrowed tomb. In a very real sense, though the grave people would not agree with us today, nor would the undertakers, you and I just need to rent a tomb if we're saved. 
Because there's coming a time, maybe very soon, when that grave's going to be empty, somebody else can use it. If you've been saved and Jesus comes again, he's going to take you out of that grave, translate your body into a spiritual body, and the grave's going to be empty. Lord, haste the day when Jesus comes. Well, early the next morning, early on Sunday morning, they went up to the grave. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but how many of us have time after time gone to the grave where our loved ones have been buried and just stood there a little while? It's not a matter of talking to them. They can't hear us. It's just sort of a matter of waiting there and remembering and being grateful. Almost every week I go to a cemetery. I stand beside some of the graves of people who used to sit where we sit. We have over 450 of our people who are out in the grave somewhere. But there's coming a day. What a day that will be when I, Jesus, we will see and the graves will be open and Jesus will raise us up in his likeness. Well, they came that day not understanding what to expect. The ladies, so much like ladies with love in their hearts, went to the grave to take some anointing oils and some things that would take care of the dead. They didn't stop to think how we're going to get in the grave. They knew the stone had been there, but they just went in love. When they got there, amazement of all amazements, maybe 4.30 in the morning, it was still dark and the stone was gone. They looked in and the grave was empty. They didn't know what to make of it. They ran quickly and told Peter and John, and Peter and John ran out to the grave. John was younger, he got there first. Then Peter came and impulsively went into the grave. It was empty. And they saw a strange thing. They saw the napkin that covered his head lying separate from the clothes, the grave clothes. Sometimes we read that so quickly we overlook what it means. There's an old Jewish tradition, we talked about this in Sunday school this morning, that said when uh, you're eating and you finish your meal, if you're finished, not coming back, you just gobble your napkin up and put it down, maybe throw it on the floor. If it's a paper napkin, you throw it away, whatever. But if you're not finished, you're going back to get some dessert or some more food. You put your napkin carefully there beside your plate because you're not through. The Jewish tradition said when you're finished, you gobble your napkin up. When you're not finished, you fold it neatly and put it by your food, indicating you're coming back. When they got into the grave, saw the grave clothes, he had just come out of them, but the Bible specifically says the napkin that covered his head was laid separate, which reminds us he was not finished. He was coming back. Jesus is coming again, and that napkin will always remind us of that. You read maybe in the paper sometime about the Shroud of Turin, and uh, sometimes you, they tell us that that's the shroud that Jesus was buried in, 
The fallacy with that is that Shroud of Turin covers his head also. And there are marks of the head in that Shroud of Turin. The Bible specifically says the grave clothes were separate from the napkin that covered his head. That napkin was taken off and put it separately. So when they got in and saw that, Peter didn't understand it, but John saw it and he believed. The first one this side of Calvary to believe in Christ was John the beloved apostle. He's the one Jesus said would live on and on. He lived to be 95. He wrote five books of the Bible, including the book of Revelation. They all saw that. Didn't know exactly what to make of it. But let me quickly mention this. The resurrection of Christ taught three things. Number one, it removed their fears. Number two, it caused them to remember. And thirdly, it sent them out to do something. First of all, notice in verse five, the angel answered and said unto the women, fear not, don't be afraid. Over and over in the Bible read, fear not, fear not, fear not. We don't have to be afraid. This is illustrated in my own life. When I was a young boy, we lived on a street named Wellington. We were very poor, lived in about a two or three room house, seven of us. But in the back there was a garage. And often my dad would send me back to the garage to get some tool or something he had left back there. When it was dark, I was afraid to go. I'd try to get him to not send me, send somebody else. But he invariably he'd send me. Then one day I got saved. I was nine years old. Amazement of amazements, when I was sent back to the garage to get something in the dark, I wasn't afraid. I don't know why I'm afraid. Jesus was real to me. You say kids cannot know about Jesus. Yes, they can. Brother Gordon was saved when he was five. Carol Peter was saved when she was five. Some of the great people of life have been saved when they were children. Don't ever say a child cannot understand. Sure he can, if the Holy Spirit is dealing with his heart. And I understood, and I wasn't afraid anymore. Jesus said, don't be afraid. The disciples were all afraid. They had run from Gethsemane. They had denied, um, they even knew him. Peter denied him at the trial. They all followed far off. Even those who came at daybreak, they were afraid. The world had fallen in, they filled the Roman government, but the angel said, don't be afraid, fear not. And that's an eternal blessing to us. When you stand in the presence of illness, trouble, difficulty, don't be afraid. Just don't be afraid. Let Jesus be your guide and your shepherd, thy staff, and thy rod, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before in the presence of mine enemies. The resurrection of accepted in faith will remove our fears, fear of present world chaos. Our world is in trouble and we're afraid. War, hydrogen, hydrogen bombed, terrorism, and all those things, we're afraid. Fears caused by personal insecurities, feelings of doubt. What's the use? I'm nobody, I can't succeed. Yet we're discouraged and defeated. This is a present problem with almost everybody. 
I was talking to somebody this week, and they told me about how afraid they were to face the future. They mentioned several things, problems that they face, and that's true. And you can either knuckle down and say, well, I don't know what to do, I'm just wait for the worst to come, or you can trust in the Lord. He'll go with you through the storm. And as Patrick sings sometimes, he'll be with you till the storm passes by. He'll never leave nor forsake. He is there. Fear is sometimes caused by the valley of the shadow. I don't know anybody that looks forward to dying. We look forward to what's on the other side of death. But who in the world said, I can hardly wait till I go down to the valley of shadow? Nobody really looks forward to that. The valley of the shadow is a fearsome thing. But out beyond that valley, he's waiting. There's light at the end of the tunnel. And Jesus is there to welcome us home. The resurrection caused them to remember. The angel said, do you remember his words? It'd be well for us to remember some things. Number one, we need to remember our sin, ourselves. We're sinners. Romans 3.23, for all of sin comes short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Ecclesiastes 7.20, there's not a just man on earth that doeth good and sinneth not. What do you hear about sin? Now some people, some people ignore sin. They say, well, everybody does it. If you were in an airplane and the pilot came on and said, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we have an announcement to make. Try not to be afraid, but we've lost power. Our motors have gone out. We're over the ocean. Have to have a crash landing in the ocean. Survival is doubtful. This happened years ago over in the mountains in Asia. Probably you read about it in a magazine. They announced this and for three hours the plane wandered around and people wrote notes to their loved ones. Later their loved ones got those notes. One of the notes said, we're going to die soon. Everybody on this plane is faced with the same danger. Most people seem to be afraid. I want you to know I'm not afraid. When I die, I'm going to see Jesus. The plane crashed. They all died. They found those notes. We're all facing eternity. And we're afraid of death. When Jesus comes in, he takes the fear and sting of death away so you don't have to be afraid anymore. You don't have to be afraid when your loved ones die. It hurts. Don't be ashamed of your tears. Tears are often the telescopes through which we can see far into the will of God. Don't ever be ashamed of your tears. Tears are like telescopes. And God can use them to encourage and bless and strengthen us. They're natural. You so sometimes you go to, this, to a funeral home and somebody's weeping and they come up to you and say, I'm sorry about my tears. You don't have to be sorry about your tears. Thank God you have tears. 
The danger is when you don't have any more tears. Don't arrest God to take your tears away. Thank the Lord for the ability to weep. But that weeping is not without hope. That weeping is over the departure. Our loved ones leave. It hurts. We look forward to trying to adjust without them present. But God will take care of you. Be not dismayed, whatever betide. God will take care of you. He'll be with you all the way. Well, you need to remember the sacrifice of Jesus at Calvary. He did pay it all, paid for all of our sins. There's not one person in this room who has committed a sin that's so serious that you can't get forgiveness. God will forgive. The only sin that God will not forgive is trotting underfoot the blood of Jesus. It's as if Jesus died in the face of hell saying, don't go to hell, don't go to hell. And you trod over that and you walk right over his body into an abyss forever. God can't rescue from that. When you go into the bottomless pit of hell, nobody ever gets out of there. So friend, be sure you're saved. Be sure you know Christ as your personal savior, that he lives in your heart. The last thing, Christ's resurrection sent them out. Look in verse seven. Go quickly, tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. Mary was a nobody. If the message of the resurrection made her a bearer of great news, if we dare to go to the open tomb and we dare to believe, then we will be bound to go out with a story so full of awe and amazement, it will set the world upside down. I remember the years we had the Crossroads Rescue Mission down on Main Street. One of our men who knew the city said there was more crime between what is now the, one of the federal buildings and the railroad track on Main Street. There was more sin and crime in that little section than anywhere other than Chicago. They called it Little Chicago. We went down there and rented an old building. So old they finally tore it down. We had sort of a soup kitchen in there and some of our young preachers would go down there and preach. Our young people would go down there and witness. And incidentally, they did not wear blue jeans and painted toenails. They went down there looking decent. Went down there looking like they ought to look. Oh, you say if you're gonna win people that are, that are dressed all messed up and their lives are all messed up, you need to dress like they, no you don't either. You don't eat all. No, you just go and present Jesus. Well, we went down there. I don't know how many people came out of the depths of that degradation. I remember one particular man, he was a barber. And at first, he didn't like for us to be down there. He thought we were gonna disturb his barber crowd. But our guys went in, witnessed to him. And uh, finally, he was a little bit more friendly. I went to see him at his home. He didn't like it at first. I went a number of times. One day in his home, he said, sir, I don't know what you young people have got. Come down to this wicked area and wearing decent looking clothes. And they get, I've seen them get down in the gutter with drunks and try to lift them out of the gutter. 
I've seen him talking to prostitutes and men filled with sin and grime and grease. He said, I don't understand why they do that nor what they have that I don't have, but I'd like to have it. That day he gave his heart to Jesus. In his 40s or 50s, he came out here, was baptized, had his funeral sometimes later. Just one testimony of what God can do when you are willing to go with the gospel and change people's lives forever. The one thing that can change a man's life is not a new suit. As much as I believe in ties, not a new tie. Not new shoes. The one thing that can change a man's life is a new heart. That's only possible when you give your heart to Jesus. And he comes in and performs spiritual surgery. He gives you a heart transplant and Jesus becomes real in your life. Well, Christians got busy for the Lord. Those who've been idle will come back to fidelity. Peter denied the Lord. When he knew about the resurrection, he came back. Thomas denied that Jesus was alive. When he saw Jesus, his life was changed. Sinners would believe and tremble when they really get a picture of the risen Lord. The resurrection will send us out to the valleys of human need to tell the brokenhearted Christian who has fallen, there's hope for you. And listen, there may be somebody in this room today, you used to be a Christian, there's no such thing as a used to be a Christian. If you've received Christ as your Savior, you're God's child. Now you may have disappointed Him and disappointed yourself, but nobody has gone so far that God will not bring you back if you're willing to turn and let Christ be real in your life. Is there anybody here today who would say that? I want to get rid of my fears. I want to get rid of my cynicism. I'm willing for Christ to come into my life and make me something else. And when I weep, I'll not weep as those without hope. When I'm disappointed, I'm not just throwing the towel and quit. I'm going to keep on keeping on. Go on going on, Christian. Go on going on. Let Christ be real to you. It all begins at Calvary, asking Christ to come into your heart and change you. And when you do that, he changes you. Mary got changed. Peter got changed. Thomas got changed. Everybody who met Jesus has been changed, including this preacher. When I met the Lord, he changed me. And through the years, I wish I could say I've never disappointed the Lord. I have disappointed him, but he's never disappointed me. He's all that he said he would be. He's all he said will be for you if you let him come in. Let's close our eyes in prayer just a moment. Our eyes closed, heads bowed in prayer. Friend, if you're here today and you've never really asked Jesus to come into your heart, why not do it now? Right where you sit, would you just say, Lord, I need you. I know that Christ was raised from the dead. He's a living Savior. He's not ashamed of me. I don't want to be ashamed of him. I right now say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I need Christ. I ask you to cleanse me from my sin. I repent of my sins 
I ask you to be real to me as my Savior. Here's my heart, Jesus. I give it to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand, please. Number 154, Jesus is tenderly calling thee home, calling today. Number 154, Jesus is calling. We let him speak to your heart. While we sing, the invitation is this. Would you say, Lord, I want Christ in my heart. I'm going to give you my life back to you. I'm coming to confess Christ as my Savior. If you're not sure how to do that, come and we'll talk to you about it, how to do that. If you're on the periphery of Christian life, you need to come back to the Lord, will you come? While we pray, while we sing, would you let God have his way? Maybe somebody, your membership is in another church and God wants you here at Glendale. You come while we sing and while we pray, will you come?